Hello, everyone, and welcome back once more to the Intervals Podcast. I'm your host, Christopher Brick, here on behalf of the Marketing and Communications Committee of the Organization of American Historians. Intervals is a public humanities podcasting initiative of the organization, and with support from the National Endowment for the Humanities, we are pleased to welcome today Dr. Jennifer Seltz, an Associate Professor of History at Western Washington University. Jennifer's talk is our first encounter in this lecture series with a smallpox outbreak that took place in the 19th century. This one in San Francisco in the late 1860s, just after the Civil War. Smallpox has already factored prominently into several other talks at earlier points in the series. And if you're wondering why, not only are you asking a great question, but also giving me the chance to share with you a bit of the answer. So thank you for that. For purposes of this series, which was devised to respond to the COVID pandemic with some historical context that we were hopeful could help to interpret and understand it, uh, the committee was particularly interested in the history of smallpox because it's one of the few viruses for which a basic vaccine technology existed very early, centuries ago, in fact. And so the history of smallpox also gave us the chance to take a long view of the history of inoculation, which the committee felt very important to consider in the present moment as well. Uh, mistrust of vaccines is not new. There's a history here. Uh, neither is resistance to public health measures nor to the broad skepticism of government officials' ability to control infectious disease outbreak, as Jennifer's talk demonstrates. In the winter of 1868 to 1869, San Francisco faced its second serious outbreak of smallpox in 15 years. The disease killed several hundred people and disabled or scarred thousands more by the time the epidemic ended in the city in the spring of 1869. San Francisco public health officials, politicians, newspaper editors, parents, and other city residents argued more about vaccines and vaccination than about smallpox itself. Counterintuitively, it was also the public health officials who discouraged vaccination as a tool to fight the epidemic, while local politicians, physicians, and others pushed for more publicly funded vaccination efforts. These arguments turned on a set of competing ideas that may sound familiar to contemporary listeners. There was discrepancy about the source of trustworthy vaccine, about how environmental change might worsen disease, and about how capable or incapable state and local governments were of managing safe vaccine production. These discussions were neither abstract nor rarefied. Mothers ground up the scab fragments harvested from smallpox-infected patients in order to immunize their children with homemade vaccine. Doctors held demonstrations of vaccine safety by injecting themselves with lymph on a weekly basis for curious audiences. Through Jennifer's talk, the overlooked environmental and cultural histories of a crucial, intimate, and common form of state power in the 19th and 20th century United States comes into view, even as they also complicate familiar narratives of the periodization, goals, and practices of Gilded Age and Progressive Era urban public health. 
When Jennifer's not working on these topics, she's also busy teaching courses at Western Washington U on the history of health and medicine, the U.S. West, and energy environmental history, as well as finishing a book manuscript on disease and environmental change in the 19th century North American West. It's all tremendous work, and my colleagues and I are so thrilled to be able to share just a small bit of that with the Intervals audience today. And here it is. Dr. Jennifer Seltz on smallpox, vaccine, and urban nature in 1860s San Francisco. On December 19, 1868, a doctor named Joseph Hain made an unusual offer to the readers of the San Francisco Daily Alta California. Hain invited anyone in the city to come to his office any Saturday morning to watch him vaccinate himself for smallpox. Joseph Hain explained he's trying to pr- that he was trying to prove vaccination safety, and over the course of his long medical career, he'd vaccinated himself at least 150 times. I don't know if the doctor had any takers. The week his letter was published, nearly 500 people had died of smallpox in San Francisco since midsummer, and at least 1,500 had fallen ill. Smallpox killed over 700 people in the city between July 1868 and June 1869, in the disease's worst outbreak in 19th century San Francisco. During the epidemic, Vaccine and vaccination dominated public conversation about the disease. The city's newspapers and medical journals were filled with discussions of vaccination's merits and problems, and of the local government's actions, inactions, and responsibility for stopping the epidemic through vaccination. Physicians and editors, public health officials, politicians, and ordinary San Franciscans argued about vaccination until the epidemic ended in the spring of 1869. They tried to make sense of why the city had been hit so hard by smallpox and how it could prevent the next bad outbreak. They debated whether getting vaccinated during the epidemic made sense. They debated whether vaccine made from limbs from from infants' arms or from pustules on cow's skin worked better. They debated whether there was something in the air which made smallpox worse and old vaccinations lose their protective power. They debated whether cleaning up streets and enforcing quarantine would do more to end the epidemic than a bigger push to distribute vaccine. Ultimately, the spread of smallpox in 1868-69 and the apparent failure of existing vaccine regimes strengthened the powers and capacity of the San Francisco Health Department to import vaccine from out of town and to distribute it. By the next time smallpox hit San Francisco in 1876-77, vaccine supply wasn't a problem. Doctors and city residents had stopped arguing in public about how to perform vaccinations, how to read vaccine scars, and where the best vaccine came from. Joseph Hain's use of his own body to advertise the safety of smallpox vaccine would go out of fashion after this epidemic, as vaccination began to change from an idiosyncratic local experience to one defined by imports of a standardized commodity from a newly organized and productive industry. These were vaccine farms in the Midwest and Pennsylvania. In some ways, this change sounds like a typical story of the Gilded Age. It's an example of how new transportation and manufacturing capacities transformed Americans' everyday lives and how these new capacities connected them in new ways to distant people, places, and animals. It could also be a a typical story of progressive era public health, if a little bit early, as reformers and city health departments gained new powers and new confidence in their ability to clean up dirty cities and make real improvements to urban health. But city health officials only turned reluctantly to these new sources of smallpox vaccine. And San Francisco residents, physicians, and politicians were often skeptical at best about the sanitary improvements those health officials had wanted to make first. And since its introduction to North America in the early 19th century, smallpox vaccine had always linked human and animal bodies across long distances. 
New vaccine technology became attractive only as older ideas about how local environments shape the behavior of vaccine inside individual human bodies began to fall apart during the hard smallpox winter of 1868 to 1869. These public debates about vaccination in 19th century San Francisco show a world which is familiar in some ways. There wasn't enough vaccine for everyone who wanted it. Public health officials were criticized for a slow and disorganized response to the rapid spread of a deadly disease. In response, these officials pushed for what we now call non-pharmaceutical interventions and claimed no one could have known how bad the epidemic would get. Poor people living in crowded conditions were apparently more likely to get sick and more likely to die. Parents were skeptical about the sources and purity of vaccine and decided whether or not to vaccinate their children based on conversations with friends and neighbors. But of course, 1868 wasn't 2021. These vaccination controversies emerged from a long environmental and political history of experience with and disagreement over two viruses, smallpox and vaccine, which are now essentially unknown in the U.S. and in the world. In 1868, however, both smallpox and vaccine were familiar entities in San Francisco. Both viruses had repeatedly arrived in and circulated around northern and central California, smallpox for nearly a century and vaccine for at least half that long. Both pathogens depended on human movement and dense settlement to thrive. Both could survive in dried form outside human bodies for a time. Smallpox had no non-human hosts or vectors, while vaccines seemed to have originated in cattle as cowpox, an illness relatively mild in humans, which granted about 10 years of immunity to variola, or smallpox. Vaccine was also, however, much more fragile and apparently not at all contagious between people. For most of the 19th century, vaccine was hard to make, hard to preserve, and hard to use. It had to be produced one arm at a time, and the lymph seemed to work best when it was fresh. Its finicky nature shaped and limited government's efforts to produce and distribute it. Imperial and national authorities in North America had tried to spread vaccine virus and the practice of vaccination since shortly after their introduction in Western Europe, with only intermittent success. Inconsistent and underfunded vaccination campaigns contributed to a patchwork landscape of immunity in California's biggest city by the late 1860s. The Spanish government had sent vaccines and instructions to New Spain beginning in 1803, and the lymph probably entered California from central Mexico and from Pacific ports from Monterey to Sitka in the first years of the 19th century. In 1823, the Mexican government ordered provincial officials to procure and circulate vaccine without providing any resources to execute a vaccination policy. Well, by the late 1830s, Mexican soldiers and officials had twice spread smallpox from northern to central California. By the time the United States claimed California, it had been decades since the American government had tried seriously to supply vaccine to anyone except Native peoples. Although Thomas Jefferson and other prominent American naturalists and physicians had quickly obtained and successfully tested vaccine from Edward Jenner from other British proponents of the new substance early in the 19th century, it also quickly became clear that cowpox could Cowpox could easily be mixed up with smallpox, and so ineffective or dangerous vaccine was a problem for advocates from the beginning. One of the federal government's first attempts to subsidize vaccination and spread vaccine nationally ended abruptly in 1822 after a Baltimore physician working under congressional oversight accidentally sent smallpox rather than cowpox to a North Carolina colleague. This was a mistake which cost at least 10 people their lives. By the early 1850s, the federal government had scaled back its vaccine-providing ambitions. Congress authorized, but apparently didn't often fund, the position of national vaccine agent. During the Civil War, soldiers and Union armies were vaccinated, but this part of the wartime state faded away after 1865. 
As in other parts of the United States, in California, vaccination became part of local medical police powers rather than national responsibility. In the two years before the 1868 epidemic, San Francisco's municipal government strengthened quarantine requirements, made city health officers responsible for procuring, distributing vaccine, required parents to have children born in the city vaccinated by the time they were six months old, and made it a misdemeanor for adults not to be vaccinated themselves. This growing municipal concern with smallpox and vaccination was part of a wider expansion of the city health department's duties, from regulating food markets and animal markets to recording mortality statistics by city ward. However, the health officer didn't have any power to enforce these ordinances. The Board of Supervisors made persuasion rather than coercion a major part of the position's vaccination duties, instructing the health officer to impress upon the citizens of the city and county of San Francisco the importance and duty of revaccination in the case of all persons who have passed a period of more than seven years since their first vaccination. It was up to individual residents or their parents to fulfill that duty. By the beginning of the gold rush years, Bringing vaccine to California and maintaining fresh supplies of it had become largely a private entrepreneurial project. Smallpox and vaccine were familiar parts of the local medical scene, and American doctors new to San Francisco advertised their supplies of genuine vaccine virus. San Francisco's rapidly growing population after 1849 showed how widespread smallpox and vaccination were globally. New residents who arrived in the city from places as close as Washington Territory and as distant as Germany showed the scars of vaccinations, while Chinese immigrants practiced nasal inoculation. Western European immigrants were often veterans of both compulsory vaccination or inoculation and fights against such mandates. New arrivals from the East Coast of the United States sought out local doctors for what we'd now call booster shots during an 1853-54 epidemic which swept from the West Coast to Hawaii. Californians were well aware that vaccination was both popular and imperfect in its scope and effects, and that smallpox had hardly been eliminated as a threat. Children, immigrants, and people whose vaccinations hadn't taken continually replenished the local disease pool. According to one prominent physician, the 1868 epidemic was the third significant outbreak in California in 20 years. But most years, smallpox was only a potential threat. Tuberculosis, diphtheria, and gastrointestinal illness were much more dangerous overall than smallpox. Between November 1865 and June 1866, for example, 223 San Francisco residents died of consumption, 79 of cholera and phantom, and 73 of diphtheria, only one of smallpox. When smallpox began to spread in San Francisco in that summer of 1868, the city government and public health officials weren't taken by surprise, but they also weren't very well prepared to perform many more vaccinations than usual. By 1868, public health officials in urban California, like their counterparts elsewhere in the U.S., were both technically responsible for vaccination and usually unable to procure and re maintain reliable vaccine supplies. They competed and cooperated by turn with private vaccine providers like Joseph Hain in a crowded medical marketplace. Neither health officials nor private physicians were well prepared to deal with the situation where smallpox was more dangerous and vac vaccination less effective than it seemed to be in earlier outbreaks. In June 1868, local doctors began noticing a few cases of smallpox. By the middle of July, teenager Henry Morton was stopping off at his doctor's on his way to Sunday school to be vaccinated, noting in his diary that smallpox is around and mother thought it was safe to be vaccinated. I do not think it will take, but however, it's not safe to run the risk of having the disease. Morton was one of many children and teenagers who were made or told to get vaccinated through the middle of the summer, but a diverse group of adults also showed up daily at the city's free clinic. 
At the end of the week, Henry Morton was vaccinated. According to the city health office, 133 people had fallen ill with smallpox and 43 had died. Smallpox had begun to disrupt daily life, but the city wasn't panicked. In late July, a lawyer trying a case in the city's federal district court asked for a delay because a witness had smallpox. The judge denied his request, ruling the witness could appear before a vaccinated commissioner. During June and July, close to 700 people were vaccinated at the city health office, as around 30 new cases of smallpox were reported in the city each week. Private physicians also reported seeing more patients for vaccination, as the epidemic intensified over the summer into the fall. And by November, nearly 8,000 people have been vaccinated in the city since June. As the health office began vaccinating many more people than usual, however, supplies began to run short. And physicians and patients' concerns about vac vac vaccines' availability, its safety, and its efficacy became more pressing. By the late fall of 1868, it was clear that vaccination was both popular and insufficient so far to halt an epidemic of what appeared to be a smallpox, which was worse than the usual kind. It seemed to be more dangerous. It seemed to act faster on individual bodies, and it was more uncomfortable when it wasn't fatal. And the physicians who were supposed to supply vaccine and perform vaccinations were divided among themselves on crucial questions of medical experience and knowledge. They disagreed about what vaccine actually was, but how well it worked in San Francisco's heterogeneous and transient population and about how the combination of San Francisco's complicated climate and rapid urban development had changed the way vaccine worked within the bodies of city residents. The crisis of the epidemic pushed doctors to make these arguments about vaccine, vaccination, and local environments more strongly in more public forums. Physicians' debates over what kind of vaccine worked best and why framed public discussion of the epidemic over the next months and shaped the city's response, from attempts at quarantines and street cleanups to further attempts at intensified vaccine production and distribution. Physicians did agree, though, that this form of smallpox posed two particular kinds of danger to vaccines' usefulness. And doctors' assessment of both dangers was rooted in what's essentially an environmental outlook, in the assumption that both disease and human bodies could be altered, weakened or strengthened, by invisible but powerful environmental factors. Vaccination might not work against smallpox worsened by what the city health officer called an epidemic constitution of the atmosphere. This was the surprising conclusion that that same city health officer, along with some other prominent physicians, had come to by December 1868, when he urged people not to get vaccinated in the midst of the epidemic. The second problem was how adaptation to California had altered the bodies of those already vaccinated. If smallpox and related fevers could be shaped by epidemic influences, so could the bodies of even vaccinated city residents. Acclimation changed new Californians and possibly weakened vaccines' protection. Physicians who were trying to assess how well vaccine was working in the midst of the epidemic focused on San Francisco residents' varied environmental exposures and their histories of vaccination, of mobility, and acclimation, rather than on other and more conventional markers of bodily difference. Throughout the epidemic, medical commentators raised questions of how race, ethnicity, and national origin might affect vulnerability to smallpox and vaccine, only to dismiss them. Newspapers and doctors noted that Chinese residents of San Francisco, living in crowded conditions and often facing occupational exposure to clothing from all over the city, should have been sicker, but they were protected by histories of inoculation in China. Doctors argued over whether Germans were particularly susceptible to that year's smallpox and ultimately dismissed the idea, instead blaming all immigrants' vulnerability to the great change of climate coming to California, which had possibly impaired the influence of vaccination. 
And most San Francisco doctors thought that their ability to make any kind of judgments about vaccine and vaccination depended on their understanding of that climate. Before and during the 1868-1869 epidemic, doctors speculated about how the cities and states' unique collections of microclimates might shape smallpox vaccine and the bodies of the people they vaccinated. They applied the tools of medical geography, including highly local measurements of temperature, wind, soil quality, and elevation, to trying to understand smallpox. Smallpox and vaccination needed to be understood in terms of these conventional tools of medical topography, despite smallpox's unique status in 19th century medical culture. Unlike other common fevers, smallpox was, in the understanding of 19th century physicians, a specific disease caused by a particular if invisible agent. It couldn't transform, unlike other fevers, into a different kind of illness within sufferers' bodies, and bodies of all kinds were vulnerable to it. California physicians mostly also agreed that smallpox was, at least in theory, contagious. The disease itself could be passed from person to person and existed independently in some form apart from its victims in the broader environment. And this differentiated smallpox from other common kinds of fevers. But despite smallpox specificity and its unchanging nature, physicians still needed environmental knowledge, they thought, to understand its behavior and to perform and assess the vaccinations properly. In discussions of smallpox and vaccine, San Francisco and California doctors saw no contradiction between seeing smallpox as a specific pathogen and seeing both bodies and their environments as dynamic and interdependent. The San Francisco and California doctors who were interested in medical topography tended to examine the interactions of disease environment at both broad and narrow scales. Large outbreaks of contagious disease, which swept across diverse and far-flung landscapes, still depended on this epidemic constitution of the atmosphere, separate from contagion itself, without which illness couldn't spread. And even contagious illnesses were probably, they thought, consequentially shaped by both ongoing and unique local environmental events, from cold fog to earthquakes. To these local medical experts, the unhealthiness of urban landscapes, as well as distinctive climatic trends and unusual geological phenomenon, really mattered to how smallpox began, how it spread, and to how well vaccination worked. San Francisco's growth had slowed during and immediately after the Civil War, but some of the most crowded parts of the city, including waterfront neighborhoods and rapidly growing neighborhoods south of Market Street, were still plagued by what the city health officer called the want of proper drainage, low grades, and filled-in ground. Land which had recently been water would always be less healthy than higher, drier, and more settled neighborhoods. A strong earthquake, in fact, shook the city and the East Bay on October 21st, 1868, after over 600 cases of smallpox had already been reported. The parts of the city most vulnerable to earthquake damage were also the most likely to spawn fevers. Doctors also regularly blamed smallpox's 1868-1869 virulence on unknown but still evident climatic factors. Physicians could see and begin to measure, if not fully explain, much less ameliorate, these atmospheric conditions which made bad diseases worse and made vaccination ineffective. One solution to ineffective vaccine and unprotected mobile bodies was to focus on stopping smallpox environmentally and spatially through quarantine and sanitary reform. This was what city health officer Isaac Rowell favored. He blamed bad drainage, which brought, he said, effluvia from the discharge of smallpox patients all over the city for the disease's spread. But he was in a minority. City health officials tried to bring smallpox patients to the municipal smallpox hospital, and during and after the epidemic, officials defended the care patients received, but most San Francisco residents were not at all interested in having their loved ones sent there. 
quarantining blocks where smallpox patients lived was equally popular and unpopular and ineffective. Although in the early fall, those who wanted the city health office to push vaccination more vigorously also pushed for a stronger quarantine and for cleaning up dirty streets. But by mid-November, as the number of, of deaths from smallpox in the city continued to climb, these advocates had nearly given up on forcing or convincing those exposed to smallpox to stay at home. Instead, one newspaper concluded, when some hundreds of tons of filth have been washed down to the sea and the last man has died who refused to be vaccinated, we expect to be able to announce that there's no further danger that the smallpox will be epidemic in this city. The next tool that the health department tried was disinfection, which made sense according to both the theory of smallpox contagion and the theory that some quality of the atmosphere was making smallpox worse. Isaac Rowell tried bleaching patients' clothing and bedding, fumigating sewers with chlorine, and sending wagons through all the principal streets with barrels of black oxide of manganese and hydrochloric acid emitting volumes of chlorine. While Rowell later claimed success for these measures, other doctors, the city's newspapers, and the board of supervisors were skeptical. Isolating patients, fumigating their residences, and other sanitary and spatial precautions were useless once smallpox had mixed with, mixed with vulnerable local bodies and environments. These physicians explained that when the disease is not epidemic, the germs emanating from a patient soon lose their vitality. But when an epidemic influence prevails, these germs resist decay and infect the entire atmosphere. Under these circumstances, the only solution local officials and many physicians saw was to make vaccination work better. The Board of Supervisors ignored Rowell's late December condemnation of vaccination, agreeing only to consider the idea of spreading Lyme on city streets. The spread of the epidemic had pushed city residents, most of whom were not arguing in editorial pages or at medical society meetings, to seek out vaccine, even if they were not sure how effective vaccination would be. By the winter of 1868-1869, the nature of that vaccine became a topic of public argument. These arguments didn't so much ignore environmental causes of disease and its spread as tacitly or sometimes explicitly acknowledge their power. When doctors, health officials, and, elect and other elected officials argued over vaccination, which was an intervention in patients' bodies and not in the environment which surrounded and permeated them, they worked from the assumption that, at least for a while, environmental causes of smallpox were too powerful to alter or adjust, and they had to be worked around. What doctors and the Board of Supervisors felt they should be able to control, though, was the abundance, purity, and efficacy of vaccine source. Old and unsettled scientific questions jumped from medical journals and medical society meetings to newspaper columns, as critics and advocates debated which was best and safest, vaccine taken from cows or from humans. One camp argued that healthy babies or children vaccinated with proven vaccine were the best source for new lymph. Isaac Rowell took this position, but also thought there were not enough of these healthy children in the city to make massive vaccine production practical. Few doctors went as far as Rowell in condemning the habits of San Francisco's families, but most acknowledged that what they called humanized vaccine did apparently carry the risk of transmitting scrofula, which is in modern terms tuberculosis outside the lungs, or syphilis. Contaminated vaccine, or the fear of contaminated vaccine, pushed fearful consumers away from either vaccination in general or vaccination by strangers using strange matter. Contamination, though, was only one potential problem with vaccine from children's arms. The larger issue was whether vaccine had been weakened by its passage through so many bodies since the beginning of the 19th century. This professional disagreement over whether bovine or human vaccine worked better was rooted in a deeper uncertainty about what vaccine actually was, smallpox transformed by its passage through cows and people's bodies, or a separate kind of disease originating in cows or horses. 
If vaccine could change from smallpox as it moved through bodies and across time and space, it could also become too weak to work. If it was a different illness altogether from smallpox, one originally found in domesticated animals but not in humans, then it might be even harder to locate and maintain reliable supplies. This apparently arcane question had been around for nearly 70 years and hadn't slowed vaccination spread or made doctors and health officials across Europe and the Americas less enthusiastic about its effects. Epidemic smallpox accompanied by a deficit of effective vaccine made the question of vaccine's nature more pressing, though. Whether vaccine had begun as a distinct entity called smallpox, which existed in humans, or as a distinct but related entity called cowpox or grease, which existed in cows and horses, mattered tremendously to how more and more reliable vaccine could be produced and produced quickly. One advantage of bovine vaccine, though, was that cows couldn't argue with physicians, try to circulate their own vaccine, or vaccinate their offspring themselves. Local doctors revealed their efforts to maintain authority with their patients as they debated the reasons for humanized vaccines' failure. Vaccination presented another challenge to physicians who were always struggling to establish their own, usually masculine, authority in a city filled with skeptical and often female consumers. Their potential customers wanted vaccinations, but they didn't always want them from doctors. Depending on human virus only worsened the problem, one doctor complained, of nurses and midwives for money and kind-hearted, well-meaning women from motives of the purest benevolence offering vaccination to those desiring it. They pick up crusts supposed to be vaccine, generally from the arms of revaccinated persons. This homemade vaccine, whether supplied by nurses, midwives, mothers, or neighbors, was, doctors concluded, not much good at best, simply dried serum and pus, light yellow in color, and quite worthless. When health office vaccinations didn't work or appeared to spread more fevers, the problem of patient-supplied vaccine grew. Physicians wanted to establish their own professional authority over vaccination choices, but they couldn't do it on credentials alone. Their individual relationships with patients, or at least individual displays of doctors' own unharmed bodies, made vaccination acceptable. Like Joseph Hain, physicians sometimes tried to interrupt the circulation of homemade vaccine by demonstrating the safety of their own vaccine supply personally. Doctors wanted to convince their patients to be vaccinated with reliable, expert-approved, unpolluted virus, whether or not they'd ever been vaccinated before. To do this, they had to show local audiences that vaccine was effective in unprotected bodies, but also harmless to those who were already immune. The premise of these claims was that individual eyewitness testimony could establish humanized vaccine safety. Some city residents, too, valued these relationships and the trustworthy vaccine they promised and objected to the Board of Supervisors' efforts to send doctors out as neighborhood vaccinators, pointing out in public meetings that some persons have fears of being vaccinated by strange physicians, with vaccine matter from some unknown source. The efficacy rather than the safety of vaccine virus became more of an issue as smallpox persisted and spread. Bovine virus became a more attractive choice as professional medical debates continued to spill into public discussion. A few months into the epidemic, the Board of Health directed the city health officer to take measures for the procurement of a fresh supply of vaccine by inoculating a cow. The Board of Health didn't much care whether the cow was inoculated with old vaccine, cowpox, or possibly even smallpox, so long as its body could begin a new chain of reliable vaccine production. Advocates of inoculated cows could also claim to be following international standards. As physicians with European experience noted that in Berlin, Paris, London, and other European cities, it's been the practice for many years to procure virus from the heifer. The heifer was selected at birth, and when five months of age, was inoculated with kindpox matter. This was still a controversial practice, though. Advocates of human lymph could also point to international opinion in favor of vaccine made from children's arms. 
and for the persistence of smallpox and cowpox as distinct diseases, which didn't change significantly over time. They also noted the apparent ineffectiveness of bovine vaccine, even when used by skilled vaccinators. Neither cows nor children could provide enough vaccine to meet public demand by early 1869, however. The city spent nearly $15,000 on extra employees at the health office and vaccinators. This was less than half the amount they spent on the unpopular smallpox hospital. But vaccine itself didn't amount to a line item in the auditor's report after the epidemic. And none of these measures were adequate to stop the epidemic before March 1869, when new reports of smallpox cases dropped below triple digits for the first time in eight months. Local production of bovine vaccine was still ineffective and insufficient, whether cows were injected with vaccine, with smallpox, or caught cowpox naturally. It took until the beginning of the summer for the epidemic to end completely. The 1868-1869 debates over contaminated human vaccine and scarce, inert, or harmful bovine matter pushed physicians and health officials to start to look further afield for reliable sources of virus, and it pushed them to reconsider their ideas of what counted as a reliable source of virus. Local doctors and officials began advocating for a new vaccine regime. During the epidemic, some local doctors had begun advertising their vaccine supplies as fresh and pure either because they came from England, which was seen as the heartland of vaccine expertise and the original source of generous cowpox, or because the vaccine orders, placed via telegraph to New York, took advantage of modern transportation and communication technologies. The state vaccine agent, who didn't seem to supply much vaccine during the epidemic and who didn't apparently take part in the most publicized medical debates, briefly advertised new supplies of vaccine from New York and London in January and February 1869. Vaccine had always come from outside San Francisco to be naturalized by newcomers, but the severity of the 1868-1869 academic and the widespread condemnation of locally ineffective virus sparked a new interest in standardized and industrial-produced vaccine from beyond California. The emergence of vaccine farms on the other side of the country provided a new option for San Francisco. By the early 1870s, companies in New York, Massachusetts, Pennsylvania, and Wisconsin were advertising shipments of pure vaccine propagated through children's arms or calves' bodies or both. When vaccine predictably returned to California in 1876, health officers once again focused on vaccination as the key to cutting the epidemic off quickly. By that year, vaccine producers in Pennsylvania, including the early version of at least one modern pharmaceutical giant, advertised a fresh supply of this genuine virus in quills, crust, tubes, and on ivory points, constantly on hand and received weekly direct from the farm, or fresh humanized and bovine virus crusts, promising that with every vaccine crust, we will send the date of its removal from the child, the name of the physician, and when possible, the name of the child. Public health officials, however, opted for Midwestern cows rather than Philadelphia children this time, ordering a supply of pure bovine virus from the vaccine farm in Wisconsin having been unable at that time to obtain a sufficient quantity in San Francisco. The 1876-1877 outbreak, which killed many fewer people in California and in San Francisco than the epidemic nine years before, also saw far less controversy over vaccine and vaccination. Both city and state health officials congratulated themselves on having turned vaccine into a commodity which could be reliably imported into San Francisco and used with a broad range of people. This public purchase of bovine vaccine from outside California was both a cause and a symptom of a number of significant shifts in state and municipal capacity, in the waning influence of expert medical assessments of local environments, uh, 
and in equally waning influence of those same assessments of the significance of bodily histories and identities to smallpox spread. Those shifts emerged partly from the crisis of the 1868-1869 epidemic, which happened in a city where vaccine was both widely accepted and widely seen as insufficient to halt that year's death and suffering from smallpox. While the vaccine farms of the Midwest and East Coast represented technological and medical and veterinary breakthroughs, their ultimate success depended on the willingness of officials, physicians, and consumers to accept vaccine from distant places and distant bodies as reliable. That willingness emerged only after other and more local options became unworkable, and only after sustained public debate about not only public health responsibilities, but about the complex relationships among diverse bodies, changing environments, and the nature of vaccine itself. And next up is the Q&A with myself and Jennifer. And here it is. Jennifer Seltz, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me. It's great for you to be here. We appreciate it. I appreciate your talk. Um, and I would wanted to know if we could start here. One of the um, uh, issues, not issues, but one, one of the factors that's arisen, um, I'm thinking particularly another talk in this series by Kylie Smith at Emory, who studies the... Um, uh, kind of racism and in Southern psychiatry. And part of the discussion I had with her when we were talking through her lecture was these regional variations in the history of public health itself. So her talk framed things as a exploration and history of Southern psychiatry in a specific time and place. And so I asked her a variation of the question that I wanted to ask you, which is, is this a a, a new Western history or a, a Western history with a capital W of public health in, in, in the mirror sort of way that Kylie was talking about Southern, Southern psychiatry? I mean, is this a, a, a Western history in, in the Patty Limerick, Richard White uh, Bill Cronin kind of sense or, or no? I mean, sure. To the last part, it is a Western history. You know, there is, it operates from the premise that there are things that are, um, distinctive about, about the West in U S history. And it is 1868, but I mean, as you know, from the talk, there's nothing in there about the civil war. There's nothing in there overtly about reconstruction. Um, it's a Western history in that it's also an urban history, right? This is an, a kind of an older insight of the, the new Western history. Is that, and people like John Finley talk about the, you know, the West as an, an, an urban place um, where most of the people, particularly the settlers, the Americans who are defining it as the West and not as, you know, other people's homelands and are mostly in cities. And so I think in that way it is. And, but of course, San Francisco as the, the pre, pre, predominant um, city on the Pacific coast and the only city of any size in the 1860s, its connections to other places are also really important to the story and um, its connections to um, the East coast and um, to immigrants from the Atlantic coast and from Western Europe, as well as from um, East Asia and South America and the way that, <clears throat> excuse me, that people from San Francisco and, and goods and pathogens circulate from San Francisco up and down 
the the Pacific Coast and, and and to Hawaii especially are part of the disease history as well. So in that way, I think it's it's a Western history, but it's a history of um, Western routes of travel. Um, yeah, you know, as as much as anything. I mean, it, it's um, is you know, it's, if if from the beginning of your question, is there kind of a distinctive Western history of public health? Um, I'm not sure that I would frame it that way. I think when you're interested in questions of an urban power and what city governments can do and the dominance of particular cities in their region for the West in the 19th century, particularly before the very end of the 19th century, you mostly are talking about San Francisco. So in that way, San Francisco Mm -hmm. can kind of stand for the West in a way that I think, you know, other, other people at the time found oppressive um, and probably still, you know, Right, because uh, San Francisco is the the, the major metropolitan right. center on the West Coast uh, right. in this in this particular moment. You talk quite a bit about the the fault lines that arise around the vaccine question. Um, so, could you talk about that a bit more? Because I found that fascinating. The kind of fault lines in terms of the diversity of smallpox and vaccine experiences, or or that sort of long-running intellectual arguments over the nature of vaccine itself, or both? I Both, yeah. I mean, because, right. I mean, I, I, I was thinking there's a specific set of conditions, right, that arise in San Francisco based on uh, not just the people there, but also the, the microclimates in which all of them are, like, existing and negotiating. So this creates a unique situation. And that those factors, in turn, support a unique set of fault lines yeah. that arise around this central vaccine question of sort of vax versus anti-vax. I found it like fascinating in your talk, for example, that it's the public health officials in San Francisco. There seems to be this, this, this internecine war or conflict going on between the professional class of San Francisco itself, between, you know, public health officials on the one hand, uh, and as you say, you know, politicians, physicians, on the other, who are uh, advocating for enhanced public commitments to vaccination. So all of these are intertwined. I think you're, you're, you're talking a really good job of that. I just um, so I, I think yeah. The answer to your question is both. If okay. we wanted to, yeah, yeah. I mean, San Francisco as actually the you know the the medical writers who are some of my the, most of my sources uh, or many of my sources in this in this talk never tired of pointing out you know San Francisco is complicated and diverse and cosmopolitan in a way that um, very few places were uh, really in the United States but um, certainly at this at the scale in the density of San Francisco in the in the 1860s and you know and in terms of vaccination histories because you had people coming from places in Western Europe in particular, where vaccination was mandatory and often unpopular, but they might show up either having survived smallpox in childhood, particularly if they're from European cities, and, or they might have been in the military in another context where they had to get vaccinated or they'd resisted it. So then you have some people that are, whose bodies, right, are all carry either probably lifelong immunity or maybe the 10-year immunity of the smallpox vaccine, right? Um, and then you have, and you have other immigrants from southern China, mostly, um, who had a different form of 
inoculation, which consists of inhaling dried smallpox lymph, right, which is actually very right. effective. Um, and so they might also be immune. And then, then and, and and then you had large numbers of people who, because of age, um, or because of the relative the absence of smallpox and the absence of vaccine in the communities that they've come from, um, were not immune and would be vulnerable to smallpox. Um, and you had more of those people coming in in the 1860s as San Francisco becomes um, a place that's um, trying very hard to make sure that it is past the gold rush, basically. Um, mm-hmm. but there are, um, they want to make it less, less of a kind of men's city, uh, boost and uh, less of a, of a, of a place dominated, um, by uh, people trying to either hustle for gold or make money off of miners one way or the other. It's trying to become um, a more settled and domesticated and white American place. Right? And, there, and the numbers of um, white American women and children um, or European immigrants who would shortly count as white as American do go up quite a bit during this period. And this is how it is in some ways a post-Civil War story because it is a story of um, with the end of the war and the kind of uh, readjustment of the Western economy and waiting for the railroad to be finished and um, San Francisco. Uh, yeah. Is that, is it the, the other, I mean, I've, I grew up in the East coast, right? So um, uh, I've been in review panels and things where it's so interesting. You have these, you're, you might be evaluating, you know, a proposal or something that comes from the West and the Western historians will react dif- differently to it yeah. you know, than, than the ones on the East, you know? Uh, uh, and uh, that is not at all something I think that's like uncommon in, yeah. in this line of work whatsoever <laughs> that, that we all have, these kind of regional positionalities that affect the questions we ask and how we enter into the exploration of them. Uh, public health is such a part of the way that progressive era reform movements brand themselves, right? So <laughs> yeah. temperance is connected to issues of public health. Sanitation is connected to issues of public health. Even uh, the political reform movements for good government and the like are connected to to these issues of public health. So, but the stories we tell about them, especially particularly on the East Coast where I am speaking to you from, tend to be infused with a, 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 a regionalized kind of urban Eastern coastal bias. And uh, uh, so I'm, I'm curious to hear you just respond a little bit more to how this works within those narratives and those periodizations of the progressive era. Yeah. I mean, I think, and this builds on obviously like as we all do on other people's work, I mean, this in some ways responding to or building on like Nancy Thomas' uh, great book, the gospel of germs, which you know talks about how um, this creation of, pro- of progressive public health was in many ways, like not only the work of people who were, um, elite or educated or male medical reformers, but also um, you know just ordinary, often ordinary women who managed to kind of blend two things that still in kind of the popular imagination of public health gets conflated, right? Like this, there's this kind of separation between um, you know the idea when of 
when miasmatic theory dominated and then germ theory arrived, right? And what she showed you know, in that book and, and other people have talked about too is that no, those two ideas could coexist. The idea that diseases could come out of specific places and that they were caused by specific pathogens. Um, where there's not really such a hard and fast boundary in either sort of elite medical history or in the kind of popular culture of medicine and as we might think. And I think this this particular and narrative about arguments over smallpox vaccine in the middle of an epidemic in San Francisco, um, in some ways, um, fits into that. And in that, what I'm trying to emphasize is that there's a, um, in order to understand the actual growth in in public health capacity, in what public health officials could do, in what people expected of local public health, um, in the arguments over those, um, you also do have to understand um, this sort of cultural history of environment as well um, and understand how much Americans imagine connections between um, their bodies and other people's bodies and the places where they were. Right. Um, yeah. And, and, and in particular, and this is maybe gets to your question about, uh, about regionalism. It's obviously like the experience of migration is not unique to what to the American West in the 19th century, this is this mobility is a defining feature right, for a lot of the United States, in the 19th century, but it's certainly accentuated and accentuated in, um, in the sources we have is that this part of the identity of San Francisco um, was that nearly everybody had come from someplace else, right? At this, at this moment, particularly for San Francisco, you know, doctors, politicians, newspaper writers, editors, and public health officials, and they're utterly discounting um, indigenous people in and around San Francisco. And they don't even really enter into the conversation. So I, I should I should note that. Um, but so there the identity of San Francisco is um, is of a place where people came from somewhere else and that part of the problem of coming from somewhere else is getting your body to uh, to acclimate to this new place, right? And this, you know, Linda Nash's work um, as explains this beautifully for particularly the Central Valley of California. Um, but it's it's also true um, in San Francisco, which, you know, just topographically, like in 1868 and now, right, is, um, I, mean, I don't know if you're so much of an East Coast person that you've never been to San Francisco. Probably. No, I've been there. Yeah, I have. I have. It's a glorious place. And, um, you know, I think probably the most visually striking American city that certainly that I've ever been to because there's just so much going on with the the bay and the bridges and the landscape uh you know those hills and the, the whole, it's 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 a beautiful place to visit so i have been to san francisco many times i love san francisco um uh but i feel that absolute sense of deficit because in my own readings of the past because I don't know much about its history yeah. beyond, yeah. you know, what you've taught me and, you know, what <laughs> a, a couple of others have taught me. I mean, I, I've done that typical, you know, pilgrimage to San Francisco many times where, you know, I've been to Alcatraz. Yeah, and, yeah right. I mean, this, you know. the geography, right, that people, the visitors to San Francisco, you know, now have. And so it's not, um, you have to kind of erase most of that if you're trying to picture 1860s San Francisco, you know, which is now, which was 
largely, you know, built around um, the kind of the the eastern side of it, the, and the kind of the, the downtown side, right? This, the down the, the downtown topography is now would be more or less recognizable. You could map it onto that, but this is a city that. Um, you know, was built in was built in a hurry. Um, much of the shoreline was filled. Um, every the, the dominant the dominant kind of experience of people in the eighteen fifties was sort of horror at how messy it was, literally messy, right? This is and um, how dangerous it was even to kind of try to disembark from a ship and make your way um, to you know to a hotel or anywhere else you were trying to go because there it's literally just sort of planks over mud um, and they could fall, you know, into the water at any time. And, and um, generally it just sort of has all the signs of kind of a very hastily built boom town. But at the same time, they also, you know, recognize that the situation of the city in terms of the Harbor and the golden gate are amazing. And we're going to make it the center and the center of commerce. Um, and, and, it be, as it becomes the kind of gateway to and you know to the gold regions and then and and then the, the the place that is you know kind of becomes the source of capital for um, almost any place else in the West, right? It does it does get a little bit more. It does it does get considerably more respectable, less sort of overly dangerous. But it's often it, it the immediate experience of newcomers is that it's an unhealthy place and. Um, you know, it's muddy. Um, the weather is kind of weird. You know, it's cold in the summer. It's- it is. Uh, yes, it, it is. Uh, it, like you said, microclimates yeah. are a huge part of this- what what makes the place distinctive. Yeah, right. And so that's what, and to get back to so then what people then made of it in terms of the public health measures of, of the 1860s, and it's medical, medical geographers, these physicians who are very interested in the interaction between bodies and places are fascinated by California overall because of the diversity of landscapes and climates, right? And San Francisco um, seems to be almost sort of a microcosm of that. It's sort of its human diversity and its environmental diversity, you know, that the weather can change going over one hill to another. And so that becomes, um, partly it's a kind of place where this provincial knowledge can be produced and and sent back to what's still the these intellectual metropolises and and can sort of help make make people's career and so that's part of part of what I I hope that you know projects like this are and can do is also show the importance of and this medical geography which was sort of entirely this settler project that wasn't unique to uh, the United States and European physicians did this too. You know, it's sort of the the job of, um, of doctors to find who find themselves in places new to Europeans to report back on how do different diseases act, how do different bodies act in these different places. And then what can we know about this, about whether or not these places are safe for uh, Europeans to settle? Um, Yeah. I mean, I, um, does does this have any impact? I mean, do we see transformations in 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 the size or scope or breadth of state power? Yeah. Uh, in this, you know, that 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 seems to be one of the the 
through lines, the things that seems to recur in a lot of these talks is that public health emergencies, and I think we're seeing this in our own time with respect to COVID-19, often give rise or act as a goad to state formation, mm-hmm. right? Because there's, yeah. there's a kind of need to not just socialize costs, but also uh, uh, benefits, because those two things are so interconnected when you're talking about uh, disease monitoring and management. So um, what happens in San Francisco with respect to, I mean, it sounds like there's uh, an enhanced set of institutions that arise uh, uh, in connection to to this work that's going on. Yeah. I mean, one of the things by, um, what happens is that, by the end of this epidemic, or even more sharply by the next outbreak of smallpox in 1876, so within 10 years, um, the the local government um, and the state board of health, um, they do have this new capacity to get vaccine from far away and, and to distribute it. And they begin to kind of supersede these smaller local networks, um, which literally go kind of arm to arm, right. in in terms of uh, right. producing vaccine and moving it around. And, and that, and um, that is a significant change. And it, pers- when you say, when you say arm to arm, you mean sort of like more DIY. More yeah. Kind yeah of that was like you have, I mean, this, this is what this generally, you know, this irritated doctors, but it was, it was not uncommon to them because everybody understood the theory behind smallpox vaccination. Like it was, you know, you would, the stuff that would come out of what was a, a pocked arm, right, would um, could then be injected or kind of basically scraped, really, um, into somebody else's arm, and they would get a mild, hopefully, a milder, you know, a milder version of the disease, right, mm-hmm. or of the what was called the vaccine disease or vaccinia, and then they'd be immune. And so that was something that was a kind of technology that people would look at physicians performing and be like, well, I can do that. Um, and I can do that if, you know, as well as a doctor or doctors themselves. This was a skill that um, many doctors, you know, had. It was just sort of a basic part of of um, of what they of what they knew how to do. But the supply, but keeping the vaccine um, fresh enough, right, and and still active was very difficult. And so that's where this this becomes this kind of niche for the places that can figure out how to do this industrially right or eventually and um, on a kind of industrial scale and so by by the late and um, by the last third of the 19th century and um, you start to see these um, new kinds of, of businesses um still call themselves farms i mean often because the vaccine is literally grown on cow skin um, and this was how smallpox vaccine was produced until well into the 20th century um, but um, but this the the local the city itself um, and and also the state then um, literally the state of California has much greater capacity to get that vaccine and then to distribute it because that had gone so badly in 1868 1869 and because um, the kind of private sector um, was not able to supply the demand um, and then. Um, and then I think that also opens up some space, and I didn't talk about this in my in my talk, 
because I wanted to focus on this kind of cultural and environmental history of smallpox vaccine. But one of the things that I think is also familiar in progressive public health is the way in which these new powers, are, you know, are directed, uh, are are racially focused, right? Are directed mm-hmm. at racially marginalized groups in, in different ways. In San Francisco, most famously, it's it's um, the idea that the Chinese are spreading smallpox becomes part of the politics of Chinese exclusion by the late 1870s. Um, and that really is a kind of shift, I think, from the epidemic that I'm that I'm talking about, where there is a kind of <clears throat> there there are some people kind of blaming the Chinese for spreading smallpox, but they're relatively marginal in the politics of the city and in the politics of public health at that moment. But after uh, after this epidemic, when vaccine itself becomes less of an issue, that's when you start to see smallpox really weaponized against um, Chinese residents of the city. When you say weaponized, uh, meaning uh, the scapegoating? Yeah. Being blamed for because of their, yeah, I mean, in particular, you know, because of the crowded living conditions in Chinatown, which are forced upon, you know, Chinese residents, and because many Chinese residents are domestic workers and because have this, you know, then they have sort of, you know, intimate contact with people's clothes and households. And so this this is a way that people know that through what we now call fomite, fomite transmission, this is a way that smallpox can spread, although it wasn't probably the most common way. And this is a, a way that Chinese are scapegoated. And, and also, and then they're, you know, they're the re- perhaps relatively, uh, more widespread immunity from people who had been who had grown up in China and had done this sort of this inhaled inoculation and um, style vaccination, and um, that becomes rather than just something that's kind of noted as a kind of diversity as in 1868 by the by later in the 19th century, that's seen as as more as a way in which they're a threat. The Chinese can't get smallpox, but they can spread it to others. So that's right. Yeah. Right. So there is a a, a kind of racial fault yeah. line yeah. that so arises. Right. But that arises that arises later, and it's and I don't think that it's necessarily um, something that was an inevitable consequence of this rise in state capacity, which you do have um, as as a result of this this kind of vaccine crisis. But I think it is it's an interesting kind of state capacity to me because. Um, <sighs> It's because it, what it does is, is it's um, it's getting the city sort of is able to extend its reach to uh, places further away, right? It's not only that they're exerting power or um, and or greater surveillance on sort of the spaces of the city. That's I mean that is sort of that is happening at the same time. But this is um, this is about building new connections to vaccine farms in Pennsylvania or Wisconsin. Whoa. So we're not just talking about San Francisco's sort of immediate hinterland. No, in fact, they would have loved to be able to find it, but the, none of the cows and the, what people call the, what people called cowpox, the, um, the disease related to smallpox are within the same family of the, of, of viruses. Uh, the, the variole. Yeah. Uh, yeah, right, yeah. Right. That's mm-hmm. and that it's actually, was for what I, and I don't know the veterinary history here. And I was for whatever reason was quite rare in, you know, cows around San Francisco. There are plenty of cows around San Francisco, but there was not apparently any cowpox. And so that had so to, they had to they had to reach across the yeah, continent. Yeah. Well, there were cows, and then also so they figured out and um, how to make this a kind of and 
sort of industrial process, right? And, and do this. You know, I um, am another uh, recurrent theme that has struck me time and again is this question of vaccine and attitudes toward it and uh, the I think the, the contemporary public discourse of vax versus anti-vax uh, uh, rarely invokes or calls upon this deep history. But for the most part, right, this has has been there. Yeah. Uh, uh, you know, the, 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 this, the skepticism along with this boosterism yeah. and the tension that arises therein. It seems to me that a fair number of people working in this field probably were drawn to these questions in part because of that, that, that context. So, um, uh, I'd be curious to hear, you know, what brought you to this work? Uh, as well, you know. I mean, in this case, you know, this comes from sort of a, a larger project on health and environment in San Francisco, where I just kept running across and this references to vaccine and the amount of time, in particular, that physicians spent arguing about what vaccine was. I just thought was um, bizarre, right? Like you don't. I mean, nineteenth-century medical journals are filled with things that are surprising to us now or not what, not the kind of language that contemporary physicians, physicians use. And so partly it's just the sort of the strangeness of that. Um, so it was just sort of what trying, wanting, to, wanting to figure out what was going on. You know, why are doctors talking about sick cows at length at medical society meetings and mm-hmm. what's, what's going on with that. Um, but then I, I think, I mean, I, I still actually, I don't know that I have a good answer to your first question, which I think is really the important, is a really important question is why don't contemporary anti-vaccinationists um, ever invoke any of this? Term? I mean, an ever is probably too strong, right? But so rarely invoke this. Long- rarely. I mean, the, the sense I got, I, I didn't know much about the history of yeah. public health before we put this, started putting <laughs> the series together and, uh, so I want to. I'm I'm so grateful to all of you who work in this field because it's been totally indispensable to helping me kind of process the moment. Um, uh, but uh, one of the things that absolutely struck me the, the the further I got into this content is how deep this history goes, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and and how much historical ignorance slash illiteracy there is out there about that through line yeah yeah i mean i have a i have a kind of unsim i mean unsympathetic to contemporary anti-vaccination answer to it which is that they it seems as if it's common um they're common sets of concerns um about vaccines right like there's a kind of common suspicion of um how can the state have the power to order something to be done, you know, to my body or to my child's body or to withhold something, you know, withhold education unless I allow this kind of disintrusion into my child's body. Like, where do I, how do I know where this has come from? Like, couldn't this cause disease? And of course, like, yes, I mean, uh, vaccines in the first vaccine, smallpox vaccines um, could cause and often did cause disease, right? And But those, those to my mind were very rational concerns in the 19th century and the early 20th century. And, yeah. um, 
the shift in, you know, the the efficacy and the safety of vaccines since then has been so great that in some ways it's hard it's hard for me to make those those connections. I mean, it's if you were and um, if if you were a parent and um, were worried about smallpox vaccine in the 1860s or 1870s and um, or even particularly later on when smallpox seemed to often be a more a a more mild variant and um, it could be a real question whether or not it made sense to get your child vaccinated because smallpox could be horrible, but smallpox vaccine could also be contaminated. And that was not. Well, and it it seems to me, you know, perfectly reasonable uh, concern to have when the public health officials themselves are discouraged. Yes, absolutely right. And it's also part of, and that was the next part, right? Is that this was the other thing that sort of, that interested me about this episode is that it is a moment of kind of, Vigor, really vigorous public debate, um, which didn't neatly fall along standard political lines. I mean, I tried to kind of to spend a good bit of time trying to figure out where the the physicians who were wanted more vaccine and and or the editors who wanted more vaccine versus the ones who wanted to focus on sanitation on quarantine. You know, did this line up with the somewhat confusing politics of 1860s San Francisco. And as far as I can tell, it did not really. And these um, these were arguments uh, over what kind what kind of environmental and medical interventions were going to work best that people had very different answers to depending on their different experience. And even sometimes the people who had very similar experiences came out on very different sides of, of this argument. And um, and so the the level of simply sort of back and forth and the ways in which like more indirectly in the case of people who were not physicians uh, or newspaper editors or politicians, but the, the numbers of voices who sort of were able to say like, no, we want vaccine or, and we certainly don't want the smallpox hospital or yes, you can try uh, san- sanitary methods, but it's not going to work. I mean, I found that um, that particular, that, that part of the story is sort of interesting. Um, or and I mean that's that's a bit weak. It's, it's, I found that um, in some ways a good counter to some of the arguments about progressive public health, which might see it as something that's more top down. And this seemed to be a, a more a widely shared conversation among people. In- yeah, I mean you you touch on that the way that um, there are uh, mothers in particular who. Who sort of forage for vaccines to yeah. yeah you know i mean um uh so there is a a, a bottom up the, yeah. a lot of times when we yeah. when we we talk about the history of public health it tends to get framed as this kind of technocratic elite that that enters into uh the dynamic when there's a and and when when there's an epidemic situation that needs to be addressed and and in turn kind of make the arm of the state and the power of the state to dictate outcomes, as it were, sort of more visible and in turn, oftentimes, as a result of that, uh, provoke a backlash of sorts or pushback yeah. that uh, that affects, you know, not just the disease ecology and how it's 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 either contained or or. Uh, uh, amplified but um the local politics and the regional politics of these spaces 
Wow. Well, I want to thank you for... Thank you. I, I, yeah. those, were, those were great questions. Jennifer Seltz, thank you for joining us. Thanks so much for having me. And that's a wrap. I want to thank uh, Jennifer again for a wonderful talk and invite you to join us again next time when Megan Burke will walk us through poor farms and poor health sites of public health care in the 19th century. I learned so much from that talk and um, the Q&A with Megan and Carrie Ann was uh, great fun as well. So please do join us and we'll catch you then.